1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 24. Let's read. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul ends his letter to the Corinthians very similarly to how he ends his letters to other local churches. So it's quite relevant for us as a local church to pay attention to these letters. And he gives final or, or summary directives he names people specifically. It's very personal. Right? It's not an impersonal thing that he's writing. It's a very personal letter. He names people specifically. He adds a personal note or, or his own signature at the end of the letter in his own hand. The rest of the letter would have been dictated and somebody else would have written it. But at the very end, he, he sort of signs off or he gives a greeting in his own hand. He expresses his love for the believers. He blesses them and he bestows the grace of the Lord on them. This morning I'm not going into details about all the people that are named in this chapter, even though there's much to be said about them, and I encourage you, look up other scriptures where many of these people are mentioned, and therefore through that learn about these individuals, and learn about some of the connections, even from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians we talks, where he talks about Apollos, and clearly you know, here he's now bringing back Apollos and saying Apollos will come and minister to you, and so on. But I want to make two general observations from verses 8 and 9 and then focus on the application of two specific verses. So I'm going to, you know, just we're going to be in verses 8 and 9 first and then verses 13 and 14 in just a bit. But in verse 8, Paul states this. But I will stay on at Ephesus 
until Pentecost. If you read through the Old Testament, and then as you read through how the early church or as the new believers were doing their ministries, they were living their lives, they were going through their activity, you will notice that God ordained the cycle of their lives, the days of their lives, according to biblical festivals, according to what he ordained for them. So you had the spring festivals, you had the fall festivals, you had these occasions in which the Lord would ask them to do something, and on a weekly basis you had the Sabbath, you had you know, the year of Jubilee, you had these occasions that marked how they lived their lives. They ordained, they, they disciplined themselves in terms of biblical significance, biblical dates. Right? And they planned their lives around those things. And then many of these festivals were pilgrimage festivals so that the people would have to travel to Jerusalem, travel to the temple, and then participate in that festival. So they would have to plan for it. They would have to do that. Today, we plan our time around our jobs, our vacations. We plan travel, but not, not to the temple to pray. We plan travel to go on a, you know, on a trip somewhere. We plan vacations. We plan social events with friends and family. We plan leisure. We plan our entertainment. We plan around school. And school now is on Sundays too. You know, it used to be that everything would be sort of shut down on a Sunday morning. Today you have school, you have sports, you have activities, you have dances. You, I mean, everything is on all the time. And other activities are going on almost, none of which are related to church or even the people in the church. And here's the thing. I'm not at all saying to you, don't do those things. By all means, go on a cruise. Do the things that are necessary to refresh and to be energized. But I want to ask you this question, and I want to challenge you. Do you live your life based on a biblical calendar? Do you think of the things of God and the ways of God and the fellowship with the people of God as your priority? Do you order your life according to biblical milestones? And as we looked at last week, church practices. The idea that we worship together on a Sunday morning. The idea that we come together in these opportunities for fellowship, the, the, the way in which we would be engaged with one another, is fellowship with God and fellowship with the children of God a priority in your life? Or is it that your calendar is really dominated by everything else that you're involved in, and then, oh, if you have time, you will participate in the things of God? The children of Israel and the children of God were explicitly commanded to ordain their time, to give of their time, to do all of those things with God as the focus, God as the priority. Everything else was secondary. So without any condemnation, without any judgment, I'm encouraging you. Think of that. Think about how you spend your time. What do you do? And see how the Lord can direct you to ordain your days in this way. In second observation, in verse 9, Paul says, he says, I'll, I'll go and stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And then he says, because a great door for effective work has opened to me. So why is he going to Ephesus? Because God has opened a great door. There is something that's happening here. Right? God is ahead of him, or God has gone ahead of him to do something, and he's seeing that, and the Holy Spirit is telling him to go, and he's like all excited to go. 
Notice the next phrase. He says, God has opened, or God has opened a great door for effective work for me, and there are many who oppose me. Isn't that great? Because you know what, what would we expect? God has opened a great door for me, and he's removed all the obstacles, <laughs> right? God has opened a great door for me, and I've got all the resources that I need. God has opened a great door for me, and I am healthy and well, and I'm able to go into this with great strength. God has opened a great door for me, and everybody is with me. Oh, they're all supporting me. Isn't that what we will say? You know what Paul says? God has opened a great door for me, and there are many who oppose me. We are surprised by opposition. We should expect it. We should say, God is calling us to a great work, and there are lots of people who are against it. <laughs> That's what we should be saying. We should be encouraged. We should be enthusiastic to say, oh, you know what? I'm not going to be dissuaded because there's opposition. I'm not going to be discouraged because I don't have the resources. I'm not going to be dispirited because somebody says, who are you to do this? I'm not with you. Right? We have to say, if God has opened a great door of ministry for me, I'll trust him. That was Paul's life. He said, oh, God has opened an effective door for me, and there are many who oppose me. All right. You know, that energizes him. That should be our story, too. Not when the things start to come up, all the different difficult circumstances come up, we get discouraged. When all those difficult things start to come, you know, we start to stay, do something. We say, oh, this is what the Lord is leading us to. God is bringing the right people. We are now going to go. And then everything seems to go wrong. Everything seems to go wrong right when you do that, right when you make that commitment. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged at all. You say, okay, God, thank you. Because when the opposition comes, I will depend on you. You know what will happen if you think the door has been opened for you and you have all the resources and you have all the people supporting you and you have all the barriers removed? You'll say, I can do this. You'll say, I, I, you know, God has opened the door for me. Thank you, God. I got it. Let me go. Right? But you've got to say, oh, the door has been opened. There are many who oppose me. There's all sorts of struggles. And guess what? When we get into 2 Corinthians, in the very first chapter, He's, he comes right back to this theme. He says, oh, we have an abundance of sufferings. That's what he says. So let's be encouraged in the Lord to say, oh, God, thank you. Then when things look the worst, when things look bleak, when my health is failing, when nobody is there with me, when everybody is opposed to me, not just that they're not supporting me, that they're actively opposed to me, I can trust in you. I can look to you. Lord, you have opened this door. But this morning, I want to spend the rest of the time just turning our attention to two specific verses. Every Sunday, I, I go through some points, and then I say, you know, we want to apply this word of God. Well, we've come to the end of this book, and really, the rest of all that I'm sharing is just a point of application. So there's only one slide up now that you need to pay attention to, and there's only one set of things to know about, right? There's... Finally, at the end of all of these things that Paul has talked about, I want to turn our attention to verses 13 and 14, 
where Paul essentially summarizes all his instruction, all his correction, all his encouragement and his inspiration. He gets into five phrases, five specific points of application, five directives for how believers should live their daily lives. And if the summary of what it means to be a Christian is to receive, believe, and hold firmly to the gospel message, the summary of how to then live daily as a Christian is summarized here in verses 13 and 14. These directives, these five directives, must remind us of every other scripture that reinforces these principles. And so I encourage you, if you just do a simple word search on any of these words that are here, or you do a phrase, you search for the phrase, you will find so many other references in the Bible that use these words, that use these phrases. And I encourage you, just read through them. When I'm speaking now, I'm just going to be referring to some things. I'm not going to every single cross-referenced verse from these five directives, but I encourage you, just go and search these words. Search for the word guard or search for the word, word firm and look at all the verses in the Bible that relate to that point. It is wonderful. It is beautiful. It is, a, you know, it is just the Holy Spirit orchestrating that together for our benefit. So this morning, let's go through each one of the statements as, as diligently as we can here. First one, he says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Why? Because there's something or someone that can come and harm you. Something or someone that will come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. There's something precious that you have that something, someone is going to come and try to kill, to steal, and destroy. Right? Be on your guard. Be on your guard about the truth that has been given to you. Be on your guard about your marriage. Be on your guard about your parenting. Be on your guard about how you are a steward of God. Be on your guard about the, this, this gospel that has been given to you. He, Paul says this repeatedly to Timothy. He says, guard that which has been entrusted to you. Guard, guard it. Be on your Guard. Be vigilant. The Bible speaks about us being aware of the devil's schemes. The Bible speaks to us about watching and seeing and knowing that the devil comes and he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What does it mean for us? That we are on our guard. When Nehemiah rallied the children of Israel to build the walls, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, they were building with one hand and holding a weapon in the other, having watchmen on the wall. Why? Because there was an enemy that wanted to destroy them. There was an enemy that was willing to come against them, that was looking for a vulnerability, that is looking for an opportunity to get in. And so it is necessary for us to be on our guard. Now, when I say this, it's not just about the world. It's not just about the devil, right? You know, we, we tend to quite quickly identify the devil or the enemy outside. Oh, this person is against me. This man, this thing is against me. This, you know, we, we, we start to point out there. And sure enough, the devil does come. The devil is not just uh, passive. The devil's not, you know, just sort of waiting for nothing, you know, everything just to be okay kind of thing. Oh, you're not doing too much in the church. I won't mess with you. No, that's not, that's not what the devil's doing. The devil's going after you in every way possible, right? That's, that, that, that's there. 
And you have to be on your guard. You have to be discerning. You have to be aware. You have to be vigilant. But I also want you to be aware that this is related to all the different areas of your life, including your own flesh. You have to be on guard against deception in yourself. You have to be on guard against the temptations that you are prone to. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, is what the hymn writer wrote. You know, the, the idea that you would say, Lord God, there is a tendency in me to go in this direction. I need to be on my guard. I, I, may, be, I may be prone to this. I may be prone to anger. I may be prone to gluttony. I may be prone to pride. I may be prone to these things. Let me be on guard. Because when that situation comes up, when there's a prompt, a trigger, something there that, that can cause me to go in that direction, let me be on guard. Let me be vigilant. Let me put a guard on my lips. The Bible says that. Let me put a guard on my heart. Let me be careful, deliberate, to be on guard about the things that can affect me. And when I talk about triggers, what that means is that you need to know what are your triggers from your past. What has happened in your past that could trigger something now in the present? Right? You have to know that about yourself. And if you need help in that, get help in that. But know the things that affect you. Because sometimes you'll surprise yourself and you'll say, I don't know why I did that. Why did I say that? Why did I behave like that? Why did I get so angry? Because there's something that has happened that now, even though it's a small thing, it triggers you and you flare up. And you have to know that and they have to guard against that. And you have to say, Lord, this is where I, for me personally, this can affect me. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need you to help me to guard, to guard myself. So we know the triggers from the past, but you also need to know your temptations and vulnerabilities in the present. You know, when Paul writes, in, and we read these scriptures, flee, flee from youthful lusts. It's not just for youth, right? It's, it's flee from our passions, desires, lusts, things of that nature. So if you know, I have a propensity to this, I have a temptation to this, I, I got to avoid it. I can't indulge partially and say, I'll be okay. I've got to get out of there, right? And for another person, that may not be an issue at all. But for me, yes, I know that this is an issue. I have to know my temptation, my vulnerability, and say, oh, God, i got to flee from that. i gotta, I got to be far away from that. And so I know my temptation and vulnerability so that I can be on guard. And then you have to know your fears and your doubts for the future. What are you afraid of? What do you think will happen? It hasn't happened, but you think it will happen. Or you have a doubt, ah, God, all my life God has been faithful so far. But what if the next year I lose my job? What if my child does this? What if I get sick? What if, and you have these doubts, you have these concerns. And you know what happens when that happens? When that goes on in your mind, the devil finds ripe soil or you know, prepared soil to plant that seed of doubt, to plant that seed of unbelief, to plant that seed of bitterness. And off it goes, growing, till it bears its fruit of sin. So we have to be on guard. We have to say, God, help me, help me to guard my heart, 
Help me to guard my lips. Second phrase, and we've talked about this quite a bit already, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail this, month, this, this week. But the second phrase he says is, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. All the way back in the book of Isaiah, we have this reference that says, if you're not standing firm in the faith, you will not stand. All the way back. Remember, the Old Testament believers were not believers because they did something. They were believers because they had faith in God. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. It was the faith of the people. Then it is the faith of the people now. We have to stand firm in the faith. We have to say, Lord God, I thank you. And when we looked at the gospel message a few couple of weeks ago even, we said we have to be firm in holding to this gospel message. We stand firm in the faith. We're not led astray by all sorts of other things. We say, God, I thank you. I thank you that you are the one that enables me to stand. Not my own ability and not the fact that I you know, build a platform and I stand on that. I stand on the solid rock of Jesus. I stand on the word. I stand on your promises and what you have said to me. I stand firm in the faith, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what's coming against me. Next, the next phrase that he says here. So he's going through these phrases one after the other just very quickly, summarizing these things. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Then he says, be courageous. Be courageous. Now, when we were studying the book of Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9, we read this verse. God is saying to Joshua, he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Be, having courage. And we speak about you know, people being bold and courageous and so on. And we quite naturally and quite correctly associate that with the idea of not being fearful, not being afraid of something. But you know, in the Bible, fear is the opposite of faith. When it says, stand firm in your faith, the opposite of it is not really unbelief. The opposite of it is this aspect of fear. When we are fearful of something, when we are afraid of what the devil will do to us, when we are fearful of the circumstances, we are unable to stand in firm in faith and we are unable to be courageous, to be bold. And we're not being bold and courageous in our capability. We're not saying, I can handle this. We're saying, God, because of who you are and because I'm hidden in Christ, I will be bold. I'll be courageous. I'll be without fear. Be courageous. Just stay firm in this. Stand in such a way that you are bold and courageous, right? The courage that is necessary for us to confront all that would come against us and to say, Lord God, I thank you that I can depend on you. And then he goes on and he says, be strong. You know, to be strong physically, you know what you need, right? You have to evaluate your physical capability. You have to feed your body. You have to hydrate. You have to rest. You have to exercise. You have to pay attention to how your body is responding. 
you know, and you, you do all of those things and you say, oh, I can, I can feel some strength. I, I, you know, I feel some, my grip strength is increasing. I can climb that mountain now. You know, I, 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 I can lift those dumbbells. I can walk a mile. I can, I, I, I feel my strength is increasing. But you were deliberate about it. You did something that was intentional to say, this is how I will build my strength. And so when he says, be strong, we're talking about the same principle applied in a spiritual context. We're saying, God, help me to pay attention and to be deliberate. If your word is as living water to me, oh, help me to drink more than eight ounces per day or six, whatever, whatever. You know, if your word is as food to me, help me to be diligent and disciplined to ingest that word to ingest that food that will give me the right nutrient that will help me to be living. Help me. Be, help me to be diligent to be building myself up in strength. The Bible speaks about us going from strength to strength. That's not possible unless we are doing something deliberate about that. It doesn't happen accidentally. Right? The people who are winning the bodybuilding competitions or the weightlifting competitions didn't get there because they woke up one morning and said, ah, I'd like to compete in that. There was a whole process involved of building up their strength to be able to do that. And the directive to us is be strong. Be deliberate. Just go to the Lord and say, Lord, build me up. Is there some area that you feel you're weakened? I'm not so strong in prayer. I know others can pray. I don't know how to pray. What stops you from building it up? I don't know how to read the word. I don't know how to meditate on it. I don't know how to study it. What stops you from being strong in that area? I don't know how to pray for miracles and wonders and signs and believe the Lord for healing, even my own body. Be strong. Start to build that muscle. Start exercising that muscle. And saying, Lord God, this area, this specific thing, help me to go after this. Be strong. Help me to pay attention to what you would want to do in my life through this. Help me to build myself up in my most holy faith. And then this last phrase that he brings up here in these verses 13 and 14. Do everything. Do everything in love. We've, and, and right here, as we look at that phrase, it should remind you of 1 Corinthians 13, where he spends the time talking about what love is and what we've looked at in previous scriptures and what you will see in other scriptures you know, throughout the Bible. But this idea that love covers over a multitude of sins, that love and mercy triumphs over judgment, that the love of God shed abroad in our hearts that is overflowing from us, touches the lives of others and causes them to realize that there is a truth, there is a God, there is a way, there is something that can set them free, that they can be set out, that they can be liberated from the bondages of sin. Do everything in love, speak the truth in love, correct in love, go after the other person, not for your benefit, but for their benefit, because you love them, because you're saying, I want this to be true for you, I want you to be built up, I want you to excel, because God loves you, and I love you, and I'm in the fellowship with God, and in fellowship with my brothers and sisters, I want to see us built together as we love one another, do everything in love. 
I want to encourage you that you memorize these five statements. They're not that difficult, right? Not that difficult to memorize for us as we would just do this. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Every single day, just think about this. If every single thing we had to do or we had to confront or to deal with in some way, we would say to that situation, out loud even if you have to, be on your guard, stand or, or make it personalize it. You say to yourself and to the situation, I will be on my guard. I will stand firm in my faith. I will be courageous and I will do everything in love. Love for my father and love for others. If that is the, 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 the soundtrack of your life, if that's what's playing in your head all the time, right? By the way, all of us have a soundtrack, right? All of us have a soundtrack. If it's being influenced by the music of the world, that's what's playing in your head. If it's influenced by movies you watch, that's what's playing in your head. If it's influenced by the word of God, that's what's going to play in your head. It will always be there. And so you want to speak this word and allow this word to be the soundtrack of your life all the time. All the time that you're, the word is coming alive in you. And as you face the situation, you say, oh God, I will stand with you. I will stand with you and your word. I will be on guard. I will stand firm in the faith. I will be courageous. I will be strong. I will do everything in love. This morning, like I said, it's just one big application. There's nothing else. Paul is ending his whole letter. And these are not just throwaway phrases. He's summarizing all the stuff that he's talked about with these five phrases, with these five directives, saying, oh, do these things. Let them be the truth for you. Let them be what you hold on to every single day, in every way, in every place, with every person, do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that gives us these directives for our life and how we must live. I pray, Father, that we will pay attention to this word. We will have this word, Lord, ingrained in us. And then we will apply this word so that in every day, Lord, every single circumstance, we will be asking ourselves and we will be speaking to ourselves and we will be doing these things that allow us, Lord, to lift up your name in these ways. Lord God, grant us grace. Grant us grace. <coughs> Holy Spirit, come and be good in our lives, faithful in our lives, reminding us of this word that we may live by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>